Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Today I continue our parabolic series where I'm dealing with uh, parables that Jesus told and praying that as He told us would happen, that as we understand them, that we will hear and see things from God in a way that we never have before. And so since uh, early September, we've been taking a parable or two a week and digging in, and we have a few more weeks of this, and the response to it's been great. Thank you. And uh, I hope that today's uh, message will be meaningful for you. I want to begin by talking about George Mueller. Many of you will know who George Mueller was, but in case you don't, George Mueller was a Christian evangelist and director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England, where during his lifetime, uh, during the 19th century, he was born in 1805, died in 1898, during the 19th century, George Mueller cared for over 10,000 orphans. He uh, was well known for providing an education to the children under his care to the point where he was accused of raising the poor above their so-called station in life, their natural station in life. That's a wonderful thing to be accused of. He uh, established 117 schools which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children, many of them being orphans. I mean, this was a guy who lived a high-impact life doing the works of Jesus through his orphanages and through the schools he, he established. But all this began in his life of prayer. Mueller is probably even more famous for the prayers that he prayed and the remarkable and miraculous answers to prayer he experienced. And there's a lot still very popular stuff written about George Mueller today, you know, 130 years or so after his death. Here's an entry from his journal as he was thinking about possibly uh, that uh, he was supposed to open an orphanage. November 16, 1835, he writes, lately the idea of establishing an orphanage for the city of Bristol and depending on the Lord is always on my mind. I have been praying in earnest for two weeks now, asking God if this idea is really from him. I knew there should be a home and a Bible education for homeless children. Rather, my uncertainty was whether it was his will or not that I should be the instrument. A few days later, December 5th, he writes, Today, my prayers became very different. I was reading Psalm 8, and I was struck with verse 10. Open wide your mouth, and I will feel it, fill it. I then clearly felt that I was supposed to apply these words to the orphanage. That's when I realized that I had not yet asked God for anything for it, except to know his will and whether I should even do it. I fell on my knees and opened my mouth wide, asking him for much. So in the beginning, the prayer was, I see this possibility of starting an orphanage. I'm wondering if this is something you're calling me to do. And then at some point, he came to believe that this is what he was supposed to do. And now he asked God to help him do it. I prayed that he, listen to his prayer list this morning. It's pretty extensive. I prayed that he would give me a house. I 
also asked God for $5,000, a lot of money in 1835. I also asked God for $5,000 and for suitable people to care for the children. Later, I asked the Lord to nudge the hearts of his people to send me furniture for the house and clothes for the children. I mean, that's not much, right? I want a house. I want $5,000, which is probably, I don't know, $100,000. Well, after the last six months, a million dollars. He asked for a house, he asked for money, he asked for people to uh, uh, work in the orphanage, he asked for furniture to, to, for the house. As I was praying for these specific needs, I was fully aware of why, what I was doing. I was asking for things that I had absolutely no means of obtaining on my own, and no one I knew did either. I also knew that none of this was too much for the Lord to provide. Next journal entry, December 10th, 1835. This morning I received a letter from a couple, and this becomes typical now, one example of hundreds of examples from his life where his prayers begin to be specifically answered. Here's the letter he received from this couple. We would like to apply for service at the orphanage. We would also like to give the orphanage all the furniture we have, since we know it is the Lord who gave it to us and it is for his use. We would like to do this without receiving salary at all, because we trust that if if it is God's will to place us there, he will supply all our needs. I love this. I love a lot about this. But I love this idea that once Mueller got got a sense as to what God's plan was for him, within that context, then he decided, to quote him, to ask God for much. If you would, please, guys, say much. This is a key word today. He decided to ask God, not for a little, he decided to ask God for much. There is a way to pray that ask for much and brings heaven possibilities into earthly existence. This is what I want to talk about today. There is a way to pray that asks for much and brings heaven possibilities into earthly existence. Now, here in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about a parable. It's called the parable of the friend of mid, at, at midnight. It's a parable about praying with shameless audacity. And I'm going to get to that here in a few moments. But first, I just want to uh, uh, take a few minutes and set up scripturally this this, the idea, the truth, I guess, from Scripture that, that will help the parable be more easily understood when we get to it in a few moments. We're going to travel just for a few seconds through uh, some of what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He wrote a lot about prayer and a particular kind of prayer, this kind of prayer, when he wrote to the Ephesians. Let's begin here with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul said, "...how we praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we belong to Christ. He says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we belong to Christ. I want you to consider that there exists in the atmosphere around us, the spirit realm, what uh, is called in Paul's writings frequently the heavenly realms, that there exists for us blessings that are in that realm but do not yet manifest in the realm of the physical. That there are heaven possibilities that 
can be brought to reality and that the way that these are brought to reality is through prayer. Paul then, uh, in a little later, talks about how that Ephesians 2, 6, we have been raised from the dead along with Christ, and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms, all because we are one with Christ Jesus. So part of Paul's teaching is that when we confess our faith in Jesus and we're made alive to God or born again, when we're baptized and raised up, that we are raised up and that we sit with Christ in this world of spirit reality called the heavenly realms that um, when there are there are different usages and I don't want to get too technical here for fear of boring you you and and fear of not getting to the to the real point I want to make here in a little bit but there are different usages of the word heaven in the New Testament sometimes heaven speaks of that world beyond ours which is the headquarters of God the Father um, Paul, the way he's talking about heaven here in Ephesians, though, is talking about the world of spirit reality. He's talking about the atmosphere around us. He's talking about the unseen realm. And this is the place where there are spiritual blessings. And this is the place where we sit in Christ because we have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. This is almost mind-boggling to consider. But I know you're sitting right now at 747 Northfield in West Orange, New Jersey in your body, but there is a spirit reality where you are sitting with Christ in this place called the heavenly realm. You're sitting with Christ. You have access to him. You have access to who he is. You have access to what you can do. We interact with God in this world of spirit, which is why Paul would say in Ephesians 6, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. It's like when we pray, we're asking Jesus with whom we sit in this realm of spirit reality to bring a spiritual blessing that exists in that realm from that realm into this one. George Mueller sees this possibility that perhaps God's calling him to build an orphanage. This orphanage exists in the mind of God. It exists, if you please, as a blessing in the realm of the Spirit. Through prayer, Mueller pulls it out of that world and he brings it into this world. See, Spirit is the realm in which we engage with God. Jesus said to the woman at the well, John chapter 4, God is Spirit and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Part of prayer is bringing possibilities from that world into this world. An orphanage existed in the mind of God as a possibility. Mueller brought it from heaven to earth through prayer. So with that in mind, I'm going to challenge us today to ask for much that which is possible in the world of spirit, to ask for much in line with God's purposes and plans for us. Earlier in Ephesians 1, Paul said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. 
Again, I'm throwing a lot of scripture at you, and I'm going through this quickly, but Paul's praying, and there's kind of an order to this kind of thing. There are some things we need to understand before we ask for much, okay? And so Paul's praying here before he's going to get to a great passage about asking for much in just a moment. He's saying, first of all, I'm praying that you'll just know him better. God is not, and it's very important as I am about to teach what I'm going to teach here in the next few minutes, that we understand that God is not like some gift dispension machine. It's not like God's purpose is to give us stuff. Um, but the fact that isn't in his purpose to give us stuff doesn't mean that he won't give us stuff. He just wants us to get things in proper order. And Paul says here, the first thing I'm praying is that you will know him better. You're in a relationship with God to be in a relationship with God. And that is an end in and of itself. But then he says, I'm also praying then that you will know the plans he has for your life. Another translation says, so that you can understand the wonderful future he has promised to those he has called. And it's like, once you have a proper perspective, you know him better, and then you, as you know him better, know the plans, the future he has for you, now you can ask him for a lot, and he will transfer from the world of the Spirit, Spirit blessings, and they will be made manifest in your life. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 is kind of climactic when it comes to this topic where Paul wrote, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Or the New Living Translation says, now glory be to God, by his mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare to ask or hope. Or another translation, the New Century Version says, with God's power working in us, God can do much, much more than anything we can ask or imagine. I'd like for you to say that passage with me. I think it's on the screen behind me. Say it with me, would you? With God's power working in us, God can do much, much more than anything we can ask or imagine. See, I believe that many of us have heaven possibilities that we need to bring to this earth. And that we are afraid to ask for it for all kinds of reasons. But the fact that there are possibilities obligates us to ask for them. It may be something in line with what you've been designed to do, something you've been called to do, something you're purposed to do. And consequently, you not only have possibility staring you in the face, you also have responsibility sharing you in, staring you in your face. For instance, if George Mueller would have just ideated about an orphanage and never move from ideation and asking whether it was God's will to actually asking God for it, it, it he, this world would have missed something incredibly important that God wanted to use Mueller to do. Many of us in this room have things like that in our lives that need to come into this world but aren't going to come into this world unless we ask God for it. 
See, you have a moral obligation to ask God for what's possible. The thing that you should be thinking about and asking for will not exist in this world unless you pray it from heaven to earth. could be an orphanage, but maybe it's God's calling you to have a child, and you, 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 you've actually not act, thought about asking for a child. Uh, it might be uh, God-honoring marriage. God is infinitely more able to bring you the right life partner than Tinder is. It might be a business that you have been called to start. I mean, some people have more faith in Tinder, whatever that is, than they do God. It might be a business you've been called to start. It might be a new ministry initiative or some other idea that has been pressed into your mind from God's mind that's a heaven possibility. With God's power working in us, God can do much, much more than anything we can ask or imagine. Now this truth that we can and should ask for much in alignment with God's will and bring good things in heaven into our lives here on earth is profoundly taught by Jesus in a prayer he prayed, a parable he told, and a teaching he offered. A prayer he prayed, this is where I'll spend the rest of my time today having kind of just set a little bit of a foundation for the rest of this talk. He, we're going to talk about a prayer Jesus prayed, we're going to talk about a parable he told, and a teaching that he offered. And this is all concentrated in one section of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 11, 1 through 12. And ultimately what we're going to learn from this, at least in today's emphasis, is that we need the shameless audacity to ask God for much. My guess is that most of us in this room do not have a problem asking God for too much we have a problem asking God for too little. And this is a serious problem that is denying our world of things God says is possible, but we're not cooperating with him to bring into present reality. Okay, is everybody okay? Everybody still awake? Hey, you got an extra hour of sleep last night. <laughs> Presumably. All right, Luke 11 Chapter 1 through 12, we'll break it into three sections. First, the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Everything we're going to say the rest of today is in response to this question. His disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. He said to them, and most all of us are familiar with this and could quote it. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation, and some translations have some variation of deliver us from evil. This, uh, the Lord's Prayer shows up in several of the Gospels, and the wording's a little bit different in each one. But this is Luke's version. When you pray, say, Father, in heaven, the other uh, Gospels say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation, and uh, deliver us from evil. There's a lot to be said about this. I've said a lot about it in the past, but today I want to make just a couple quick, simple points about the Lord's Prayer. First of all, the purpose of this prayer isn't just for us to repeat it. 
but rather to, that, to understand that it teaches us how to approach God and to have a sense of the kinds of things that we can pray about. There are lots of different prayers in Scripture and lots of different ways to pray. Scripture talks about praying in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers. This is one prayer. It's fundamentally important because it's Jesus teaching us how to pray, but it's not exhaustive. It's not comprehensive. As we learn, it's just the introduction, actually, to a bigger teaching that he's about to do on prayer. But we learn some things fundamentally important in this prayer, and, and, I, and I think that, that uh, it's very much in line with what I've said about George Mueller, very much in line with what I talked about from Ephesians, and that is the mo- first and most important thing is that we have a proper perspective and that we're making sure that the, uh, the things we're going to pray for are in alignment with God's will. So this prayer begins uh, by talking about our Father uh, who is in heaven. It's important that we remember when we talk with God, especially when we pray with shameless audacity, when we ask God for much, it's important that we remember who he is and who we are in relationship to him. He is our father who is in heaven. He, you know, uh, tr- uh, uh, theologians speak of God as being in this way transcendent meaning that he is outside of this world. He is beyond this world. If you could draw a circle around everything that we know exists, God exists outside of that circle. He is our Father who is in heaven. Now, thankfully, he decided to come into the circle. For God so loved the world, he sent his only Son. That's why theologians don't just say that he's transcendent. They also say that he is imminent, meaning he showed up, he came down, he's here, he's present. He came through Jesus. He's present in the world now, in this room now, through his spirit, right? But, but we need to begin with the idea that God is not just somebody we're talking to. God is our Father in heaven. And then we're told that his name is hallowed, that he is to be reverenced. We begin, we don't just show up and start, you know, some people talk about prayers if we're going to boss God around and God has to do what we're going to say. And, 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 and I, just, I just think it's important that we start prayer from the right perspective. He is God, we are not. He is the Father in heaven, we are his children. That's a very important relationship, but don't get confused about who you're talking to, okay? But don't also at the same time, don't let who you're talking to keep you from asking him for much, all right, let's just get the order right. And then the next thing that happens is we're, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So, so we acknowledge who he is as God the Father who is in heaven. We reverence his name, and now we ask for his rule to be established in our lives, in our world, in such a way that his will is done, not the will of any other. I teach about this all the time. I'll leave it there. I'll simply say that before we start asking God for things, let's remember who he is, and let's make sure that we're asking that his rule is established in our lives. We're not the boss, he's the boss, right? We want his rule to be established so that his will is being done in earthly situations as he has determined for it to be done in heaven. Now we get to ask for all kinds of things. Now the asking starts. Give us this day the things we need, our daily bread. 
and forgive us for our sins and don't let us be led into temptation deliver us from the evil one and remember guys that's not an exhaustive list that's not a comprehensive list it is a it is a it, it, these are important categories of prayer but it's an example of the kinds of things we can ask god for what kind of th- what kind of things should we ask god for we should ask him for anything that's in alignment with his will expecting that when we do he will hear us so again we don't just barge in saying god give me give me give me but neither are we afraid to ask god to give us the things that he has prepared for us and has for us and wants us to ask him for John wrote to the church in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Guys, how incredibly hopeful and powerful this is if we ask for anything in alignment with his will. Now, some folks then are afraid to ask for much because they're not sure whether it's his will or not, right? And there's a lot of confusion around this for people. And I think it's important to know that there's a, there's a relationship that happens between you and God as it concerns what it is that you're asking for. How do I say this quickly? I didn't do a very good job saying this quickly at nine o'clock. Uh, how do I say this quickly? We learn about God's will as we know him better through his word, as we know him better through our relationship with him, we learn about his will in general for the world, we learn about what he's up to, what he's doing, how we could participate in it, and we learn about his will in, in our lives uh, in ways that I would say oftentimes are pretty general. That doesn't mean that there can't be specificity, and there is, and I'll share an illustration in a few moments about something uh, specific I prayed for, but, 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 but I think sometimes we get too confused. We're afraid to ask God for something because maybe we're asking for something that's not in his will. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard said that possibilities are a hint from God possibilities are a hint from God. When you have ideas, when you have thoughts, when you're feeling called to do things, you you need to talk to God and pray about that. But he's probably not going to send you a detailed step-by-step plan as to what it is you're supposed to be doing. It's like he, he, he lets you, within this broad idea of his will, make decisions. He created robots. I'm pardon me. He created human beings, not robots. Sometimes prayer is God saying to us, he says generally, hey, this is my will. This is the kind of thing that I want for your life. This is the kind of thing I'm doing for the world. We get a sense of what that is. And within that, we get to make choices as to what we're going to go after, what we are going to ask for, what we're going to try to do. And he leads us within those things. That deserves a whole series, not uh, uh, three or four, try to get through it quick minutes. It's like, okay, it's the will of God for you to eat, right? When you leave here in a little bit, you're going to say, uh, okay, I'm going to go to a restaurant. And some people stand and like, okay, God, which restaurant do you want me to go to? 
And I don't think God cares one way or another most of the time. Now, there are times you may feel a prompting that you should go to a particular place and so on and so forth. You understand? But some, some of us are, are waiting for God to give us the address. It pops up on our phone with directions and our GPS. And God's saying, it's my will for you to eat. Go get something to eat. Where do you want to eat? This is great. You like that restaurant? Go enjoy it. And I just think as it concerns our life, they're, 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 some of us are, are we're so worried about whether we've got every little, you know, uh, I dotted and T cross that we we are hesitant to ask God for things. Possibilities are a hint from God. Kierkegaard went on to say, "So if God wants to stop something, he can he can stop it. If you ask him for something that's not in alignment with his will, he's not going to give it to you. Don't be afraid to ask because you don't understand every little detail." So on one hand, I'm saying we begin by saying, "God, what do you want for my life?" And then at the same time, we live simply from that. We, we don't sit around and agonize every day about every little detail. We get a sense of, you know, I had a sense, God, a very dramatic sense that God had called me to pastor a church in a suburb of New York City. And, 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 and I assume that, that, that now uh, there are decisions I make and actions I take and things I'm doing that are in alignment with that. But it's not like God said, uh, it, it, therefore, it is my will to have chairs that are... Uh, earth tone in the auditorium. I, don't, I, I think we should have chairs, but God didn't give us that level of detail. But, I, but, but having chairs in the auditorium, which I'm sure we prayed for because we probably didn't have the money to buy, is in alignment with God's will in some level. All right. That we're supposed to have a great church in a suburb of New York City. You get my point? All right. But we start with this, okay, you're the Father in heaven, I want your rule established in our life. I want your will to be done. And then Jesus moves on to the next movement of this passage, Luke chapter 11, verse 5, by telling the parable that's supposed to be the feature of today's message. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you, he's still, same topic, he's not changed subjects, it's the same topic. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. All right, most of us are familiar with this parable. Suppose you have a friend at midnight, Jesus begins. That's how it's translated in the New International Version, which is the most popular and uh, probably highly regarded common translation today. Suppose you have a friend at midnight. Actually, uh, scholars say that that's not the best translation of this particular passage, that it should be translated, who from among you has a friend who you go to, and in fact, uh, Klein Snodgrass, the eminent scholar on the subject of the parables, wrote this. I'm going to read from him. He said that the, it should be translated as one long question, verses 5 through 7. Who from you will have a friend, and he will go to him in the middle of the night and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves since my friend came to me from the road, and I have nothing which I may place before him. And that one would answer, don't bother me already. The door has been closed, and my children are with me in bed. I am not able, having risen to give 
give you anything. The whole point is that no one would have a friend like that in the crowd Jesus was talking to. He was asking a question, the answer to which was obvious. Jesus said, who from among you would have a friend who wouldn't give you bread if you asked him for it? And the answer is, none of us would have a friend who wouldn't give us bread if we asked for it, because at that time in ancient civilization, it was common to the ancient world in a lot of places, but particularly in that culture, uh, uh, strengthened by the teachings of, of, of the Hebrew scripture, the, the, the value of hospitality was so high, and the power of shame, if you didn't provide hospitality, was so high, that no one would have refused to give a friend bread if they would have asked for it. This is the point. Jesus is trying to make is none of you would have a friend who wouldn't give you bread if you ask even at midnight even if it wasn't for your friendship they do it because you had the shameless audacity to wake them up and ask the question and Jesus is saying well what's he talking about he's talking about prayer he says, well, if it's unthinkable that your friend wouldn't give you bread for your guest, how could you possibly think that God the Father wouldn't give you your daily bread? What's he talking about? He's talking about what he was talking about in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. He said, how could you imagine that if a friend would do this for you, that God wouldn't do this for you? Everybody at that time probably knew which of their neighbors had baked fresh bread um, uh, they would often, most didn't have kitchens in their homes, so they'd break bread, bake bread in common areas. So everybody knew who had fresh bread. And, 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 and God saying, you know, uh, if you go to the guy you know who has bread he can give you, how could you think that you, if you came to me when you know I have, you know, all the bread in the world to give you, uh, how much more would you expect me to do this? In fact, this parable is under a category of parables that are called how much more parables. It's where uh, a question is asked and an illustration is given about something that a person might do for another person. And then Jesus will say, if a human being would do that, then how much more wouldn't your father in heaven try to do this? See, the main point of this parable is that God is not like this sleeper. Sometimes people will try to get too literal with a parable like this. God is asleep and he's in bed with his kids and you got to knock on the door and wake him up. The point is that, that human beings may sleep, God doesn't sleep or slumber. God's not asleep. He's, he, you don't you really even have to wake him up. Uh, in, in fact, he's saying to you, I want you to come and I want you to ask me for things like this. If some friend would give you bread, how much more wouldn't God give you bread? And then there's this idea of shameless audacity. Well, let, let me tell you, before I get to that, Story about George Mueller written by um, uh, one of his biographers, uh, Cindy uh, Mallon, I believe her name is, where, where uh, she talks about she talks about how to find a story in your notes. <laughs> I think that's what she talks about. She said. One of a hundred stories you tell about George Mueller, the guy that did the orphanage thing. Things looked bleak for the children of George Mueller's orphanage in England. It was time for breakfast, and there was no food. In the dining room, long tables were set with empty plates and empty mugs. Not only was there no food in the kitchen, there was no money to buy any. 
A little girl whose father was a friend of Mueller's was visiting in the home. Mueller took her hand and said, come and see what our father will do. And then he did what he always did when it was mealtime. He prayed. Again, a table, no food, hungry children around it. And he prayed, dear father, we thank you for what you were going to give us to eat. Immediately they heard a knock at the door. When they opened it, there stood the local baker. Mr. Mueller, he said, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I had the feeling you had no bread for breakfast, so I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread. Here it is. Mueller thanked him and gave praise to God. A few minutes later, there was a second knock. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. He said that rather than let the milk spoil, he would like to give it to the children. Mueller didn't have food. What did he do? He prayed for it. People knocked on his door to bring him bread. I think that we can have a relationship with God that's in such a way that not only are we knocking on his door asking him to give us bread, but people are knocking our door down to give us the things that we need. And part of the key here is this idea then of praying with shameless audacity. It's being willing to ask God for anything that we believe may be in alignment with his will. Sometimes maybe even asking, we're not totally sure, but we think it's possible. So we ask with, everybody say, shameless audacity. Shameless. I've heard this referred to as praying with nerve. Every time this word shameless is used in Scripture, it's used in a negative way. But Jesus here takes a negative word, shameless, and uses it to describe a positive action, shameless prayer. Why? Because God wants us to literally be shameless when we approach him in prayer. He doesn't want us coming with our heads ducked. We've acknowledged him as our father in heaven. We've acknowledged that we know who he is. We've asked for his kingdom to be established. Now he wants us to approach him boldly. He, Jesus is letting us know here. He wants us to approach him with shameless audacity. See, God is not into shame. God is into covering shame. He doesn't want his people living in shame. He doesn't want his people being ashamed. As soon as the first human beings discovered that they were naked and felt shame, what does God do? He makes a sacrifice of an animal so he can get the skin of the animal to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve so that they would not be ashamed. It was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that Jesus would make so that through his blood, through his effort, our shame would be covered. Listen, when we approach God in prayer, he doesn't, we, we, he doesn't want fig leaf prayers, if you please. He he doesn't want hiding somewhere, afraid of what God's going to say, like Adam and Eve were when their shame was first discovered. He doesn't want this kind of, oh God, I know this is really a lot to ask you for. I know you're probably going to get mad at me. Why are we like, why do we, and I know a lot of us are like, I know a lot of you. I know a lot of us. I've been in this business a long time. I've had lots of conversations with people. Their relationship with God is kind of like that. Oh God, I know you probably don't like me very much and you're mad at me because I actually am a human being and I made mistakes and I, I don't know if you really would want to do something I got this idea I don't that's not how God wants you to approach him he wants you to approach him with shameless audacity and ask him for the things he has he can give you to carry out his purposes in your life and on the earth 
The writer to the Hebrews said, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the most holy place, the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience. We need to ask God for big things, much things shamelessly, knowing he can do much, much more than what we ask for. Okay, let me start to wrap this up with, an, with a very personal illustration from my life. And, I, and I'm awkward, I feel awkward telling this kind of story. I've told this, I think, in, in full once, uh, but it's been a number of years. Because it's personal and because of the nature of this particular story, it's going to sound a little name-droppy. This is my experience. This is something I experienced. So forgive me if it feels that way to you. Again, I just feel like I need to tell this to make a practical illustration of practicing this on one occasion in my life, and I've practiced it in a number of ways. A number of years ago, our oldest son, Caleb, everybody's still awake, by the way? Some of you just woke up because I said, I'm going to tell a story that makes me feel awkward. You're saying, I like that. Uh, our, our oldest son, Caleb, uh, was headed towards uh, college years, and we're trying to think through you know, where he's going to go to college. And um, obviously, we're praying for him to go to college in, in line with his area of destiny, big subject in our family, big subject here in our church. And one of the things that happens that we didn't necessarily associate with college is he decides as a junior in high school for the first time uh, to play football. He never played football. We played a lot of football in the backyard, but he never played football. He was an athlete. Uh, he was a, a really excellent high school basketball player, all-conference kind of guy. Uh, but he never, never played football. And uh, so he goes out for the team, West Orange High School, makes the team, starts at his first game at tight end, at defensive end. And uh, uh, it's pretty clear watching that first game, he didn't know a whole lot about what he was doing. Uh, <laughs> But he was an athlete, and he was strong and big. And, and anyway, West Orange High School went on that year to lose every game they played. They were terrible. And uh, I would like to have said, you know, you watch one of your kids do something, you think it's the greatest thing in the world. I can't say he was great either. I mean, it was just one of those things. And I thought, you know, that's probably the end of the football story. But he, uh, he decided as a, that he was going to go back out for this losing team as a senior. And he works out, lifts weights, and works on being a better football player. And he, they go out to their senior season. Lo and behold, West Orange High School has the best year in their history to that point. Uh, they actually had a better year four years later under his younger brother when his younger brother was quarterback of the team, but that's something for the siblings to talk about. But anyway, they had the best season of their history and uh, go to the playoff for the first time since like Genesis chapter one. And lo and behold, if this kid hasn't become a really good football player, which is almost like impossible in one year, you know, and, and, and colleges start reaching out to him. Well, um, the, the, the interesting thing is he starts getting, he was a great student, and he starts getting uh, letters from some Ivy League schools, 
which was a different kind of experience for us. Uh, I'm the first person in my uh, family line to earn a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. Uh, My dad grew up on a farm in Indiana, didn't have indoor plumbing until he was 16 years old. I mean, that's, you know, we didn't talk much about education. It just wasn't that big of a value where we were from and in our family life. And so now we've got, we've got schools reaching out. We only have schools reaching out. We've got Ivy League schools reaching out, and it's kind of interesting and, and um, trying to think through all of this. And, and one of the things we know, it's a, it's a long shot. It's a long shot for a lot of reasons for any of these schools because most of these schools, they've been following kids since they're, you know, in, in junior high school in some cases. And it's its sen- middle of this, it's the football season's over now, senior year, and most of them have all their slots taken and they don't have any more offers to give anybody. But anyway, we, we're thinking about this. Sharon and I are a favorite place of ours, Mazatlan, Mexico. I'm out on the beach at a place that I enjoy praying there, and I'm praying, and I'm praying about my son, and I'm praying about all of this. And all of a sudden, I feel this strong impression to pray that God will make it possible for Caleb to go to one of the best colleges in the United States. I feel this very specifically. And I happen to have read an article a couple weeks before from U.S. News and, and World Report that said the three top colleges that year uh, were Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. Not necessarily in that order. I look at a Harvard person sitting over there. Uh, but those were the th- top three schools. And I found, here I am. I'm on a beach, you know, standing near my swimming trunks, praying about my son, and all of a sudden I find myself asking this ridiculous I mean, this is ridiculous. Lord, this kid of ours, he didn't play football to a year ago, and that's some people showing interest is still a long shot and all of that. I'm praying not only will you give him an opportunity to go to school, you know, one of these places, and, 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 and where they're going to help him financially, but I'm praying that you will send him to one of the top schools in the world. I'm praying that you'll send him to Yale, Harvard, or Princeton. And I felt embarrassed, in a sense, even asking. And I know I just said you should approach God with shameless audacity. So I, I overcame the embarrassment to make that ridiculous ask, and I made the ask anyway, even though my hu- human part was saying, this is a stupid thing. Why would you ask God for that? Now, I don't think every kid's supposed to go to Yale, Harvard, or Princeton. Every kid's not supposed to go to college, even, right? Uh, everybody's got their own path. You do understand? I didn't pray that prayer for Christian, even though, frankly, Christian ended up being recruited. Most of you think of Christian as a scholar these days, but he was an athlete. He was an all-state quarterback, and he was recruited pretty heavily by Harvard, for instance. So I've got stories about that that I probably will never tell. But anyway, he didn't want to go to Harvard. He wanted to go to Wheaton. He wanted to go to a Christian school. He had a great D3 football program. And, and he wanted to, he felt called to be a pastor, and that's where he wanted to study. So, so we didn't pray Harvard prayers for him. We prayed Wheaton prayers for him. Do you understand what I'm saying? This, this was very unique to us, to Caleb, to that time, to that story. I pray with shameless audacity. All of a sudden, we get a letter from the Yale recruiter. Uh, he wants to come and watch Caleb practice basketball, of all things. Uh, this football season's over. can't watch him play football. And, and, and we, we would invite him over to our house for a recruiting meal. And um, uh, he ended up, by the way, that recruiter said that it was the best recruiting meal he had ever eaten in his life, my wife, which explains a lot about my circumstances. 
But anyway, you know, we, and, we're, and just to be frank, we're intimidated by the whole thing. Now, I'm not so intimidated by that. At this point, I've had a lot of experiences since then that, that I, I probably, but I'll just be frank that at, at that point in the history of our family, this is a different kind of thing for us. It's rarefied air. The football world and the Ivy League world both combined. You know, the, uh, here our son is. He's a kid who was homeschooled. Too. He was in ninth grade. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a son of a, of a, of a, of a pastor from the mid West. He's, he's a Christian kid whose college essay was about a missions trip that he went on when, here at the Life Christian Church. And, and we know some of the kids that are on the team, this governor's son and this Hollywood producer's whatever. And, uh, and, and we just we feel a little bit out of our realm. And, and especially, we have no legacy. We have no history in that. We have no... Uh, 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 so, so, so we're having this meal and while we're having this meal, we've got Caleb all dressed up. You know, he's got four or five or six layers on, so he looks big and strong. <clears throat> and uh, uh, all parents do that, by the way. And, and we make sure he's eating a lot that day. And, and uh, we're having this meal, and it's feeling, you know, it's a little awkward, right? And what do we talk to him about? We don't have very much in common. And there's a knock at the door. And uh, I, I, I go to the door. Christian had been practicing basketball that night. Our younger son had been practicing basketball that night with his traveling team. Uh, Christian would have been, I don't know, sixth grade probably, fifth grade probably at that time. Uh, and um, he's been practicing with his traveling team that, that happens to be coached by, at that time, the governor of New Jersey, Richard Cody. Uh, Dick Cody's kind of famous for this. He takes a group of fifth graders and he coaches them through their high school years. And it's just something that he's done as a hobby for a number of years. And both of my sons were on his teams and he knows both of our sons. He likes both of our sons. Well, we were having this recruiting meal. So we told, by the way, you can leave anytime you want. I'm going long, but... I don't know how to tell the story any faster. Uh, we're having this, uh, uh, I t- we told Christian, we're having a, you're having a meal with this recruiter from Yale, and you need one of the other parents to bring you home. Well, uh, when he's asking parents around, Governor Cody here is the Yale recruiters at our house. He likes our son. He wants to help out. So he, the governor, brings Christian home. He walks up to our door, knocks on the door. I open the door, and he says, hi, Reverend, which is what he always calls me. Hi, Reverend. He said, uh, by the way, don't call me Reverend. I'm not very Reverend. But anyway, he says, hi, Reverend. And uh, he walks in the house. He's never been in our house before. He's been in the driveway a few times, but he's never, he, 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 he walks in the house. He walks to the dining room like he lives there. He pulls up a chair that's empty, evidently it's Christian's chair. He sits down and he starts scooping salad onto his plate. And he engages with this Yale recruiter from the governor of New Jersey sitting at our table talking about our son and how great he is and what a good kid he is and all this kind of stuff. Now, that's, you know, one of several stories. I mean, that's a pretty good story, actually, but that's, I made it up. No, I didn't really. That's one of several stories I could tell of the ridiculous things that happens until in January of that year, we're sitting there in the coach, Yale's uh, coach's office, looking at the Ivy League trophy, the last one they won, by the way. Harvard seems to beat them every year. And uh, he makes an offer to our son to go to Yale. And our son accepts the offer. He goes to Yale. He has a nice football career, but more importantly, they have a great film school. He is supposedly one of the best in the world. And he, and he, 
He studies film, falls in love with film, meets all kind of interesting people. It's an interesting place with lots of people who have lots of connections. He moves to Hollywood. He feels called to make movies and to act. And, and uh, he's ha- at a place in his life. He's beginning to have some wonderful success. He just got, but, but, but he just got married, by the way, uh, two weeks ago. And the only pictures available... The only pictures available are actually exclusive to people.com. We haven't even got to see the pictures yet. But it gives you a sense of this. He's catapulted into this very interesting life that he feels like a Christian kid who loves Jesus and who married a wonderful Christian girl who feels that God's called him into that world. Well, well, I'm not claiming that me praying that prayer on the beach in Mazatlan is the only thing. You know, he worked hard. He Lots of things, lots of people, lots of things. But at some point, I saw in my mind this possibility, and I said, God, I I know this is crazy to ask for, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Now, here's what's more important, a lot more important than that, is that many of you who are sitting in this room right now have things that exist in the world of the Spirit that will not be manifest in this realm unless you approach God with shameless audacity and say, I need some bread. And we need to be willing to ask for much. I'm going to encourage some of you to quit praying such small prayers. Now, not that God doesn't care about all kinds of things in our lives, but please hear what I'm saying today. I'm not emphasizing small prayers. I'm emphasizing big prayers. And I'm emphasizing big prayers to a big God who was able to do much, much more than anything we can even ask or imagine. And then Jesus goes on and says, and I'm finished. He goes on and says, Luke eleven nine. 9, this is his next statement then. So I say to you, so this is the third movement in Luke 11, 1 through 12. The first, the Lord's Prayer. The second, the parable of the friend at midnight. The third, we'll call it, how much more will your father give good gifts to you? So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Hey, guys, what do you want? You want bread? He's got bread. You want eggs? He's got eggs. You want fish? He's got fish. You want the Holy Spirit, which is the means by which all other good things? He wants to give you the Holy Spirit. The point is, though, you have to ask. Prayer is determinative. Did you see that? I just closed this. You notice that? Prayer is determinative. In other words, it matters whether or not you ask. Prayer is where we engage our will with God's will. He wants us to ask. Even though he knows what we have need of before we ask, he wants us to ask. James said, you have not because you ask not. What doesn't exist in your life right now because you 
haven't asked God for it. 